be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my special guest this week, Chris Collinsworth, legendary NFL wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals and Emmy Award-winning NBC Sports Analyst. Welcome to A Current Life, Chris. Thank you, Jimmy. I didn't know you you were into the broadcast world these days. Welcome to my life here, brother. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm... I'm trying to emulate you. I'm a long way off, but I'm Don't having a little. Don't do that. That's a dangerous <laughs> thing. Believe me, I'll let you read my Twitter page somewhere. You'll, you won't want any part of that. We've run it a few times. The last one being about your hair. So it's, oh uh... my god, <laughs> my idiot kids, my two sons down there who always make fun of my hair every day of my life, and because I have like, whatever the 1950 pompadour, whatever they want to call it. And uh, so they came down to my office one day, and, and they were just talking to me. And I was I, I noticed they were a little bit weird looking, but they're always <laughs> a little bit weird looking. And uh, they got their hair all slicked back and could barely contain themselves. So uh, I let the world enjoy the moment. Well, it certainly keeps us honest, doesn't it? Because I'm dealing with I'm dealing with a whole bunch of boys in my family, and I'll tell you, they hate my hair, they hate the way I dress, they hate everything about it. So. And the only thing they would hate more is if we wore our hair like they did and dressed like they do. See, but then they would go berserk on us. So that, that would panic them. So, no doubt. No doubt. Well, for our fans, uh, uh, first of all, Chris and I have known each other for close to thirty years, and and it is an honor to have you with me today. And uh, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to kind of give you a quick introduction. Chris Collinsworth made quite a name for himself on the football field. He's dominated his opponents on every level, from high school to professional. His entire professional football career was spent as a wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. Upon retirement, he's gotten in, he, he got into broadcasting and was eventually recruited as a sports analyst for NBC, where he has been honored with 12 Emmy Awards. He's the most honored studio analyst in sports television. Well, Chris, I'd say you've had a heck of a time between football and broadcasting. And, uh, you know, I just say uh, I'm proud to have been one of the First people to kind of come across you 30 years ago when we were having some fun back in the old USFL days. Yeah, it almost uh, worked out that way, too. I, probably nobody remembers at all, but, um, of course, you were, you were with the Washington Generals. We made a little trip up there, and then uh, I went down to Tampa and signed a contract with the John Bassett and the, the 
Tampa Bay Bandits, and that was a great place. I mean, they did they did all kinds of great promotions, and we're getting forty thousand people. Steve Spurrier was the right coach, and they were throwing it all over the yard. And unfortunately, so I signed what they called at the time a futures contract, and and went down there. And um, but I had two years left on my deal with the Bengals, so which is freaked everybody out, but it was perfectly <laughs> legal. But by the time I got down there, I think the USFL had kind of gone another way, and, and they really didn't want to pay the contract, and so I went back and played with the Bengals again. Well, you know, you, there haven't been many times like that. Uh, the uh, uh, there was, Where there's been competitive leagues and where you were able to do things like that. Obviously, I was went from Washington to Tampa and then to the New Jersey Generals, actually, and, and we we had a, a, a friend in common, um, um, who uh, uh, Rick Bennett, who was obviously, uh, uh, I guess he was was he representing you at the yeah, time? Yeah, he was. He was my first agent right out of school, right out of college, and and uh, unfortunately passed away. But right. what a what a great guy, and and uh, kind of helped uh, guide me through some of those early days. Well, he was also represented me later on and when I was with Trump and uh and I was sorry to see him pass but uh what I want to start with is kind of your journey this show's uh, called a current life it's about the journey of life more or less the ups and downs that we all have to overcome to get where each of us is meant to be and whatever each of us terms success so I'd like to start with your early years of growing up I think you were born in Dayton and then moved with your family to Titusville, Florida. What were you like as a young kid growing up in Florida? Um, I, I don't know, probably like everybody else in the world. All I wanted to do was play sports and, and hang out. My dad was uh, my high school principal. Uh, my mom was a uh, was a school teacher as well, so that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. Uh, but uh, um, one of my early memories was coming home from elementary school and um, I was uh, I had won the 50 yard dash. You remember the old presidential physical fitness deal? You yes. You got the patch and all this stuff. And uh, so I had won the 50 yard dash, and I was strutting in the house, you know, bragging like a, a third grader would. And, and, and my mom said, uh, "You know, don't get too cocky on me now." She said, "I can still beat you." I was like, get out of here. There's no friggin' way you can beat me in a race. I am the king of, of Croton Elementary School. This is not possible. She took me out back, and it was three straight. Boy, it was a little bit humbling at that moment. So it was uh, my, my early days of competition were, uh, uh, were brought crashing down by my mother in third grade. Was she an athlete, too, when she was growing up? You know, she really wasn't. So much. She was the president of her sorority at the University of Kentucky, and but I'm sure she was very athletic. But you know, women's athletics before Title IX weren't much to speak of, and so it was kind of a different day and age. But uh, my grandfather had told me what a great athlete she was and how fast she was in the neighborhood, and and uh, and he was supposedly sort of the the king running champ around. Uh, uh, West Virginia, where they grew up down in the mountains, but you know nobody ran track or was on a team or had a stopwatch or any of that stuff. They just had whoever was the fastest guy in the neighborhood, and I guess that had a little status with it too. Well, I'm curious, were you tall when you were in high school? Yeah, yeah, I was. I was, you know, six three or so, and I was uh, starting on the basketball team when I was a, a freshman in high school, and 
my brother ended up being a much better basketball player, but my dad started. He played at the University of Kentucky under Adolph Rupp. Wow. And won a national championship in 1958 and, and went on to uh, his early days in, in the school system. He was a, uh, a basketball coach and an administrator, and as he worked his way up, uh, eventually the superintendent of schools. Um, so, but uh, I went every year to basketball camp for probably eight weeks out of the summer um, because my dad was teaching every week, and I didn't think anything of it. It was I lived in Florida; it was hot as heck outside. So to get to go in the air conditioned gym, well, it really wasn't air conditioned, but it was still what I wanted to do. So I went to basketball camp for like eight straight weeks. Uh, along with my brother, and that's how we grew up. How I ever ended up getting into football, I'm still not really sure about that. But, uh, you know, started playing in high school, and, and basically after I won the 100-yard dash in, in the state of Florida, I started getting recruited from everywhere to play football, and then just kind of it all took off from there. I'm curious, because in those days, you know, I think people played multiple sports, whereas today, it's real difficult. I mean, I know you have uh, several children who and uh, who play sports, and I think the, your one son has been on the championship team out of Highlands for several years, if I'm correct about that. Yeah, actually, both of them. Uh, both of them. Highlands has won five straight state championships in football. Coach Dale Mueller over there has done an unbelievable job. And uh, But my one son's playing at Notre Dame right now. My other son is a junior in high school, will be a senior next year. Uh, and he's starting to get some attention and may end up playing a little bit too. So, But you're right. It, it, to me, it's really unfortunate that we don't allow these kids to play multiple sports anymore. Everything is so specialized. It's year-round training. It's off-season camps. It's, you know, all this stuff. And when I played, I was I played football, basketball, baseball, ran track. We did everything. You know, and then in the summertime, we're on the swim team, you know, so – and, and I, I, I worry that, you know, sports have become <clears throat> a bit of a job for a lot of young people instead right. of being something that is a great joy, you know. I mean, by the time football season was over, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was practice anywhere football. I couldn't wait for basketball. And then when basketball was over, we were baseball or track or whatever. Um, and, and I still think that <clears throat> to some extent that uh, playing high school sports was my favorite time. Uh, because you got to do a little bit of everything. Well, you know, I I have a, a 16 year old who's six foot seven, left handed. He plays basketball. He did play football. He may go back to it. He runs track. You know, he wants to play baseball. And the fact is that all those schedules overlap. And so he's really saying to himself because we had a talk one day, and I said, you know, you know, to push yourself, assume that I won't be around and be able to pay for your college, and what would you do? And he said, well, I'd probably work a lot harder, and I'd probably focus. And it was an odd thing. He said, I'd probably either focus on basketball or football, but I think I'd have an easier time get a, getting a football scholarship because there's just not that many basketball scholarships, you know, available because there's less players. And, you know, I could see that he started to look at things a little differently because, you know, look, for me, being in the football business and in other businesses, I always say to my kids, do whatever you want, you know, but if you start, finish and, and you know, don't walk away from it. And and I and I've learned a lot from him, uh, you know, watching him go through the different kind of trials and tribulations that when I was growing up, I played tennis, I played baseball, I played a little bit of basketball and you know, it just seems to be very specialized and full year-round, almost like the NFL is today. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure it's a healthy environment either physically or mentally, you know, that you put all your eggs in one basket. And let's face it, unless now your kid's a little different story. He's a big six foot seven kid, so he's going to get attention. But, you know, people always ask me, oh, do you think my kid has a chance to be a pro athlete? And, you know, you're at some of these camps. And I said, you know, let me ask you a question. Do you ever, when you go to your kid's sporting events, do you hear people in the crowd saying there's no way that kid could possibly be 10 years old? He has to be at least 14. I want to see his birth certificate. All the time. The monster, right? If your kid's getting a little bit of that, then, yeah, maybe he might have a chance to be a pro athlete. If he doesn't, if you're not hearing what a cheat you are for holding back your kid and playing it for <laughs> too old for his age bracket, he's probably not going to be in the NFL. I mean, these people are physical freaks now. And there's enough of them that are, you know, and it's not always, you know, the, the guys that love the game the most. You know, it's, it's the, the guys that are physically superior. You have to have certain numbers, you know, height, weight, speed, to just have a chance. Um, and I, I've kind of gotten involved with the coaching at the, at the high school level with my son playing there. And one of the things that I really love about it is that, you know, the, 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 the real great, athletes, the kids with the biggest heart, the, with, the, with the greatest passion for the game, are playing in high school because everybody can play. You know, there is a role for somebody who will work hard at any level uh, to, to play on the high school level. Now, at college, we're going to eliminate, you know, 90% of them. And then and when they get talk about the NFL, we're going to eliminate another 90% of them. Um, you know, but so many of those guys are just the guys with the physical bodies and skill set to play at that level, but they're not always the guys with the great passion. Well, you know, I, first of all, I think you're completely right, and I think there's a certain innocence to the high school sports still, you know, where they go out for the love of the game. And one of the things that I used to remark about you, since we've known each other for so long, was the fact that you had fun playing. I mean, you just looked like you had fun playing, and you always had a smile on your face. You were very competitive, but, you know, you enjoyed it. And I don't know today... Um, I've probably done about 90-some-odd contracts in the National Football League. Some of that fun is gone. Maybe a lot of it's gone. I don't know. But, uh, you know, you'd have to tell me the difference between today's NFL athlete and, and, you know, when you played. But there seems to be kind of a a different kind of mindset. And and yet when certain people come around and you see that on their face, that, that they just play because they love the game, you know, they're just different. They're just very unique, and those are the kind of kids, in my opinion, you got to grab. Yeah, you know, like a Victor Cruz from the Giants. Yes. What a joy it was to talk to him last year. Came out of nowhere, had no expectations, the salsa dance, won the Super Bowl, was a great player, all those kinds of things. But I remember one time we were playing in a game and, and whatever, and we went out to the clubs after the game, and this one girl came up to me, and, and she goes, she goes, Chris said, I had end zone seats, like in the front row. And when you guys came down to that end of the field, we could actually look inside the helmets of the players and see their faces. And, and you guys, you, you look almost human. I was like, no kidding. Is that right? You know, and I think that a lot of times people watch these games and they think they're watching some. Uh, you know, Fox's robots out there playing or something, and you forget, you know, how many different things are going on in people's lives. You know, sometimes it's, 
their children are sick or they're getting a divorce or they're having financial this or, you know, and there's always that. That's the amazing thing about, you know, being around a football team is somehow you've got to herd, you know, 50 cats to into the, into the same area, get them on the same page. And, and how many games in my mind are won and lost just based on, you know, what's happening to these players off the field because, you know, they're either into it or they're not. And now, you know, it used to be nobody ever quit playing football. You know, you couldn't afford to quit playing football. You know, right. what are you going to do? Go get a job and make the same amount of money. Now these guys are making so much money, you know, signing a contract. I keep waiting for the day that somebody goes, you know, I really want to thank the Giants for signing me to uh, this multi-year deal. I'd also like to announce my retirement. <laughs> exactly. Moment, you know, it's unbelievable. Well, there's also so much more information flowing around. You know, and in the, in the, if you look back on it, when you when you when we were together in that uh, thirty, almost Scott, I guess it was about thirty years ago with the USFL. You know, uh, you know, there wasn't the information flow. I mean, I'm, I can't remember if there were cell phones, but definitely there was not. You know, the internet, and there wasn't all the information. Everybody is really scrutinized today. I know there are people that specialize in the Twitter world and all that stuff, but everything you do seems to be under a, a microscope today to the nth degree. That's got to affect you. And, and one of my questions that I wanted to kind of ask about was, how do you maintain this balance, you know, and what in your growing up years and the influences of your parents and other mentors helped you really achieve this balance where you're able to, with Holly, raise a great family, you know, and and you travel. I see you on airplanes all the time. You're like me. We we travel all over, and yet we still have families and and kids that are that are our priority. So, how do you maintain that? And what got you to that place where you were able to? Well, I just say, I, I call it the, the three F's. You know, faith, family, and football. As long as I get those three things right, my life's going to be all right. And anything outside of those three, if it comes down to a hard decision for me. I walk away from it. You know, I love to play golf, but I'm not going to let, you know, golf get in the way of the three F's, you know, because those are the three things that I think are, are the most important thing. But I, like, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure nobody knows what my schedule is. But when I go on, we fly out on Friday to call the game. Actually, I fly out on Wednesday to do the Showtime show back Wednesday night, fly out again on Thursday night or Friday morning to go visit one of the teams, the home team, uh, we interview all the players, we do all that kind of stuff, and then I get on a plane, fly back to watch my high school game with my son playing in high school. Um, if if I can, I fly then to Notre Dame to watch my other son play, and then I fly back to interview the other team after the game, uh, or do it over the phone, or, or do whatever. So, uh, you know, even when I'm working, NBC's been nice enough to me to allow me to to stay with with my family. And if they weren't, and if they didn't do it that way, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. You know, when John Madden retired, they asked me to, to take over that role. And Hey, I was like, well, you stupid. I'm not taking over for John Madden. <laughs> That's a death wish there, you know? And, um, but, you know, and I, I explained to him because doing the studio, you don't really don't have to get there until Saturday night that all this other stuff was more important to me. And, so it, it kind of became a little bit of an issue. So they really kind of worked it out for me that they were going to allow me to, to travel and, and go watch those games because that's what really mattered. But, you know, it comes across uh, in the way you do it. 
it comes across that you have that balanced life, and I think that you're able to reach more people that way in terms of kind of the personal relationship between you. And, and you've done an unbelievable job at replacing John, and, and I'm, I know I'm not the only one that's told you that, but it's, been a, it's really been a fun experience to watch you. And, you know, you talk from the heart, and that's an important part of, of what you do. So I commend you on that. By, by the way, I want to ask, uh, do you still have the record uh, for the longest touchdown pass he threw at the University of Florida? Does that yeah. still hold up? Yeah. 99 yards? It can't be broken because, uh, you know, I, and I didn't know this at the time, but, you know, sometimes like on kickoff returns, if you return it from the, you know, nine yards deep in the end zone, they give you credit for a 109-yard kickoff return. Right. But on a pass, they judge it based on yards gained from the line of scrimmage. So no matter if you threw it from the back inch of the goal line, it would still only be a 99-yard touchdown pass. So there's been a handful of them in college football. I don't know how many now. I, I, I want to say at the time there was six or seven. There's probably six or seven a year now for all I know. But um, it was the first game I ever played in college football. And we were playing Rice, and we were winning by two or three touchdowns. So they put me in at the end of the game, and a guy named Derek Gaffney, who you may know from the New York Jets, sure. got in the huddle, and I was, it was the first game I'd ever played in. And, and uh, he looked over, and he goes, he goes, he goes hey, he goes, Rook, or whatever he called me, he goes, take a look at that guy who's going to try and guard me over there. So I was like, all right. So I was supposed to throw an out route to him. He said, I'm going deep. I was like, what am I going to tell you? you know, he's a <laughs> I was like, go for it. So I hit him on, you know, kind of in stride and then on a little sprint out pass. He goes 99 yards, and I get back to Gainesville. I really don't even think anything of it. Get back to Gainesville, and all of a sudden it's, you know, big news. And it's <laughs> got a record. Well, you'll never lose that record then, right? You may have no. some ties. But... Yeah, no, it's great. It's really fun. So you graduate with an accounting degree, and then you're drafted by the Bengals, 37th pick overall. Did you, obviously, I'm sure you didn't, you, you know, everybody questions decisions in their life, but you were foregoing, foregoing your accounting career. And how did your family feel about that and the fact that you were going into football? Yeah, well, let me think for a minute. I was foregoing my accounting career. Well, I really wasn't <laughs> that good at that anyway. <laughs> Go to the National Football League. We all took about a good solid half a second. To think about that, one. <laughs> that was a tough one, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, but it was, you know, it was really. I was planning on going to law school, you know, not knowing, you know, nobody knew, you know. Now they kind of know you're going to be drafted with the 38th pick overall by the time it's three months from the draft. And right. talked about the lack of information. I didn't know for where I was going to get drafted or if I was going to get drafted or anything. So I took the LSAT for the law school exam and, and uh, got into law school at the University of Florida and was just planning on doing that. And then I got drafted in the second round. And But the Bengals had drafted David Verser, another wide receiver ahead of me. They already had Isaac Curtis on their team. So I still didn't know, you know what would happen. They go up there and make the team. And, and uh, then about five years later, I started dating Holly. And, of course, had never done anything with the law or anything. And she was in law school. And so I started hanging around the law library a little bit and reading books while she was studying. And I was like, well, this is stupid. I might as well just go ahead. And so I, I signed up to, uh, to go into law school while I was playing. So I would go at, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning and take a couple of classes, and the Bengals were good enough to let me do it. And the last couple of years of my career, I was, I was taking law school classes. Well, you, you, 
got your degree, right, in 1991? Was yeah. that about right? Yeah. yeah. Never never sat for the bar exam, just, you know, kind of, but it's it's a great tool. And I really never had time because by the time, you know what it's like to sure. sit for that bar exam, you got to take a good four or five months out of your life and do nothing but study. Well, I was already, you know, calling football games, so there was either I was working when they were doing it or there was no time to study for when I could take it, you know, in the off season. But one day, if you ever see me working as a lawyer, you know that it really uh, <laughs> hit bottom for me. Well, I'll make sure I hire you. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're here with Chris Collinsworth. You're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Smartwater, Ohio Midwestern College, and Ads Baseball Networks. Please stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you have career aspirations that seem beyond what you think you can afford? At Ohio Midwestern College, you can transform your hard work into a bachelor's degree in business administration, education, or Christian ministries. Call 1-888-887-4300 or check out www.omw.edu to learn how you can afford a fully accredited degree today. Ohio Midwestern College. Affordable. Professional. Genuine. Our open enrollment starts today. Call us now at 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. That's 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voiced America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and is the co-founder of BR Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to The Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Professionals and families who are dealing with autism face challenges that can lead to many questions. Questions about how to understand, communicate, and support each other. Every week, Autism Today with host Dr. Patrick J. Rydell will focus on dealing with the diagnosis and the day-to-day challenges of autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Rydell will combine his 30 years of experience along with featured guests from the ASD field to provide their insights and answers to your questions. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with my special guest, Chris Collinsworth, legendary NFL wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals and Emmy Award NBC sports analyst. Chris, let me ask you, uh, upon, well, first, before going to, to the broadcasting career, the switch from football, what were some of your fondest memories playing for the Bengals? Um, you know, we're uh, obviously the show is, is in Cincinnati, and, and, uh, and the Bengals are, I've known family for a long time. You went to uh, two Super Bowls, if I remember correctly, and a number of Pro Bowls. What were one or two of your f- favorite memories? Well, my first year, we went, you know, A, I didn't, just getting to start my rookie year was was pretty amazing in and of itself because we had drafted the guy in the first round, uh, another wide receiver, and David Verser. So that was a big accomplishment. And um, then my rookie year, we went to the Super Bowl, got beat by the 49ers, got beat by them again last year of my career, but, um, and, and went to the Pro Bowl. And so that was about as good as it could possibly be. But I remember when we, we played in the um, Breeze Bowl game, the mm-hmm. AFC Championship game, it was, it, we, I woke up the morning of the game, and, uh, and I was, remember, I'm from the University of Florida. I, I had never even seen snow but once or twice in my life at, at this point. And they had the, one of those clock radios in my room, and it said, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's uh, 13 below zero. The wind's blowing 35 miles an hour. Uh, that makes for a wind chill of 59 below. Whatever you do, don't let your dog outside today. And I'm thinking, this dog ain't going nowhere. This is insane out there, you know. And, and so we get out to the, to the stadium. Finally, nobody's car would start. We're at a hotel 30 minutes from the stadium. Nobody's car would start. And so we finally we hitch a ride with some one of the bellhops and like a old beat up Chevy of his, the only thing running. And uh, so we're all filed in this car and go down and um, we we get to the stadium and I, I look and like all these guys are crowded around this, this <laughs> big box, you know. And so you know sometimes you're in the NFL, they give you a few things. We're in the championship game and. So I go over, you know, if it's free, it's for me. I'm going to get mine, too. And I look in this box, and it's just filled with nothing but Hanes queen-size pantyhose. <laughs> and, and all these dudes are grabbing these pantyhose and putting them on. And I'm telling you, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard in my life, you know, watching some of these big offensive linemen trying to wiggle into a pair of Hanes queen-size <laughs> pantyhose. And, I was like, oh, my gosh, but the idiots were out there and, you know, like no shirt sleeves and no, you know, just tough guys. What nobody knew was that underneath they're wearing pantyhose for the <laughs> I got, guys they wore. That was the coldest day I think I ever – was that against San Diego? It was. It was, and poor Dan Fouts came out there and, you know, was trying to throw the ball. But, the, you know, as, as cold as it was – the wind, I mean, 35-mile-an-hour winds, You can it's like being in the Arctic or something. Yeah. yeah. And so we're out there, and Kenny Anderson was, I still think that he deserved to be in the Hall of Fame for that one game alone. I mean, he was 
you know, no glove and, and throwing the ball with perfect spirals into that wind. And poor Dan Fouts was throwing it, and the wind was just taking it everywhere, you know. And so we, we won that one pretty easily. But it was, it, it was definitely a moment to remember that game. Did you have any particular one person or a mentor in, that you could turn to during your years in the football? You know, a guy that I really have always just loved, and I had great friends, and, you know, Steve Kreider and Kenny Anderson and Isaac Curtis and uh, all those guys, but there was a defensive back. I don't know if people will remember or not. His name was Kenny Riley. He was from – Sure. Uh, they called him the Rattler because he was from Florida A&M. And he was a guy – he was a veteran cornerback who probably played 16, 17 years in the league. If they took him to the Combine – he probably would never even get a chance to play. He probably was running four eight by the time I got to him. And uh, but he was so smart. He was he knew everything about football. And every time I would run a route, I, you know, I would and he would cover me like a blanket. And I would just ask him. I said, "How did you know?" And he said, "Well, you know, you dropped your hands. You did this." Wow. And he kind of taught me the game. I mean, he really did. But the the one that I remember the most that he did for me was, you know, the old uh, Turkey Day, Thanksgiving Day gag at our place. You know, they would send guys to the grocery store or whatever to ask for their free turkeys and get them on film and all that kind of stuff. Well, the Bengals, they, uh, they would send you to the turkey farm, and they would have these convoluted directions that they would hand out to all the rookies. And so guys would spend their entire day off driving down these dirt roads and looking <laughs> this turkey farm for everybody's free turkey. And so the guys were scared to death the next day when they came back and they couldn't have found. Some guys went to the grocery store and bought turkey <laughs> to give to the guys. It was ridiculous. But Kenny tipped me off to the whole thing. And so I never went on the, the wild turkey goose chase out there. And I, that was the one that I appreciated more than anything else. I'm sure. Did guys come back with, with live turkeys ever or no? Oh, Nothing like they used to do it with they would they would send them to the uh, to the grocery store until one of the guys went down there and said I'm here to get my free turkeys and the, of course the guy at the grocery store looked at him like are you nuts what's what are you talking about <laughs> and uh, but it was you know so the guy the player ended up getting mad. You know, and he he wanted to fight the grocery store clerk because he wouldn't give him his free turkey. He said, "I know everybody else is down here getting free turkeys. You better give me my." Free turkey. <laughs> so when they when they started the death threats on the store clerks, that's when they came up with the turkey farm idea. Well, you know, you you go through football, you have an incredible career, and then you decide to go into broadcasting. How'd that all come about? And was that something that kind of came to you, or was that something you had kind of planned on? Not at all. I mean, you know, I told you that I, I was in law school at the time when I got cut by the Bengals after I was 30 years old. My knee was destroyed and all those things. But so, you know, and I just thought I had about maybe because <clears throat> I was only going part time. So I had probably a year and a half or so left of, of uh, law school. So I was just going to finish and, you know, take the bar and be a lawyer. And about two days after I got um, I got cut by the Bengals, I got a call from uh, Ross Greenberg and Rick Bernstein of the sure. HBO, and you know they said, you know, are you still going to try and play? And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of my knees kind of messed up, and don't think I can play anymore. And 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 they said, you know, well, he goes, we we'd like to talk to you about hiring you to work on inside the NFL. 
I was like, okay. I said, I'm not doing anything else. Might as well. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just married, and my wife was pregnant with our first, and, you know, the whole thing. So I was, I was interested. And he said, well, we can pay you $50,000 to do features on our show. And I was like, ah. I said, that sounds great. I said, I, I am in. Count me in. I'm a done deal. I said, I just have one question. What's a feature? <laughs> I had no idea what they were talking about, but I knew I could do it. I just had to figure out what it was first, and they laughed. And uh, but I, I and then from there I got hired by NBC the same year. Like, uh, well, actually, I got hired by WLW Radio to right. do fill in for Trumpy, some Bob Trumpy, who was working the games on NBC. So that was good to have that job. And then I got hired by NBC to do four games. And and I was like, okay, I guess they did that to everybody. They just kind of throw it out there, see what you can do. And and uh, so I did the four games and uh, had no idea what I was doing. I did them to the smallest markets possible. Um, and, and then I must have done well enough because they offered me to do five more. So I did five more. So I did nine that year. And then, but I was making nothing. Like I was making, you know, like what I was getting paid was less than what the plane ticket was to get me to the game. I mean, it was ridiculous. So the next year, I I tried to. Um, I was like, hey, you know, they wanted me to do it again. And I was like, okay, but I, you know, you got to pay me whatever four thousand dollars a game or something. Right. Ridiculous. And they started laughing. They're like, no way. And so I just thought they were being hardcore negotiators. Never heard back from them. That was it. That was, that was done. And so I didn't do it at all the second year. And then the third year, they after I sat out the whole year, they came back and offered me a deal, and I started doing Notre Dame games at that point. Wow. So at, during that year you sat out, did you have any regrets? Um, yeah, maybe a little afraid to be a negotiator. Yeah. <laughs> God, you should have called me. I should have called you. I, been, I know Rick and Ross and all those guys. So I mean, yeah. You, uh, but it was it was an enlightening. Anytime I start feeling like uh, the people can't live without me, I just reflect back on that story. Like, yeah, thanks. All right, see ya. Was like that was a little bit humbling. Well, you came a long way and ended up. I'm curious. Was one of your Special moments doing the Summer Olympics in Beijing, along with another one of our guests, Bob Costas. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was crazy to go over there, and you know, first of all, just being in China is a little bit different. But they, you know, they were very warm and gracious people, and uh, you know, obviously had their best face on for us, and and wanted to. But you know, so I we we got there, and you know, everything's flipped upside down though, because they're twelve hours different, right? And um, so it was it was tough assignment, really, from a television standpoint, because a lot of what I did was interview the basketball team or the swimmers or whatever the case may be. And sometimes those interviews didn't get finished until, you know, whatever. Early in the morning. Night, one yeah. o'clock, two o'clock. And then we're on the air at 8 a.m. over there. And right. so you came out. And then, so then I'd do whatever I had to do on the air, uh, talking about the feature or whatever the story was. So then you started to go home, and you had to go to bed. You know, you haven't been to sleep yet. And but then you go walk by the track venue or the swimming venue or whatever, and you know you hear screams coming out. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to bed. I'm going. So I really kind of went three weeks without sleeping for. You know, I felt like I was sleeping an hour or two a night. It was crazy, but it was so much fun. I mean, it was 
it was just, you know, it's, it's amazing to be there for people that haven't been to the Olympics. It's just, you know, there's such a, a, a nationalistic, jingoistic kind of pride that goes with those things. I remember we were in Vancouver this, uh, recently for the Olympics, and when the Canadian athletes who were doing great, I mean, they really had a great run, would, would win a medal, and they'd sort of put it on one of the boards or whatever, just in the streets, you know, of, of Vancouver, they would break out into the Canadian national anthem, and it would sort of spread like wildfire through the streets, and you would just get chills listening to this stuff, you know, as people, and we were at, in the arena, Al Michaels and I were at the arena when uh, the, the Canadian team won the hockey, beat the U.S., and uh, I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable. I mean, you know, because, you know, we're always cheering so hard for the American side. And, you know, I was then, too. But it was actually one of those moments that I didn't mind because it meant so much to the Canadian people. If they lost hockey, that was like the first time the U.S. lost basketball to the Russia. I mean, it would have been devastating, you know. And uh, it was just it was really a magical time. I know, you know, uh, no job is ever as glamorous as it seems. I, I think for many people, you have the perfect dream job. Uh, how, what would you say are, are, is your favorite part of your job and also the worst part of your job? Well, the best part is the minute that we get ready. Actually, as soon as the opening on camera is over, that's the best part of the job because then it's just a football game. Uh, the opening on camera, I still look and I go, God, I hope I don't screw this up. <laughs> you know, it's the first thing you do and you're looking at the camera and the whole thing. So I still have a little bit of it. So when that's over with, I love it. But the best part of that moment is about five minutes before that opening on camera, I take all the research that I, that we've put together for the whole week and dump it in the garbage can. It's like a ceremonial burial, you know, because it right. is a full week's work. I mean, I really start studying for the next week's game on the airplane trip home from the previous week's game. Wow. And it doesn't stop. I mean, I, we put together film reviews and talked to all the players and coaches. And, you know, it, it's a good 10-hour a day, you know, every day of the week, no days off for the entirety of football season. So as much as I love it, and I do love it, um, by the time the Super Bowl's over, I, I'm I'm not looking to go watch game tapes for <laughs> for a long take a time. time away from it. But uh, it, it's a great job. Unfortunately, you do have to, you know, critique what the players and coaches are doing. And if I'm not doing it, somebody else is going to be doing it. Sure. Uh, there are a lot of broadcasters that have been able to get away with not doing it. But I really kind of feel like that's my job. You know, to be honest, I don't try to be mean spirited about it, but. You know, they hired me to critique this performance. And, you know, there are a lot of guys that sort of play the role of cheerleader. I've never done that, or I don't feel like I do. I, I feel like, I, you know, the, I work for the fans, and they deserve my honest opinion. And if I'm wrong, and sometimes I am, I usually try to correct it myself on the next broadcast or somewhere else where I am. And and uh, But for the most part, I try to, you know, see it and say it, you know, not think too much in between. Well, I think that's a, a good part because I think people people like that honesty and directness. It may cause a problem between you and a player or whatever, but I, I think that, you know, having played like you did, you certainly are aware of a lot of things that a lot of people wouldn't be aware of. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like that when people come in with businesses and stuff. I try to do it in a positive way, constructive way, but, you know, if something's just not there, it's not there. And, and, I, and I think sometimes you help 
by telling the truth, and it's really the way you deliver it that's the important thing. And, you know, I've never seen you be mean-spirited or anything. I'm sure that there are times when, when, when people have, you know, attitude problems about what people say, but, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the game. And, yeah, and probably the biggest question I get asked, and I, I, it's kind of a joke, but it's really kind of the truth, is, you know, why do you hate the whatever, Colts, Packers, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere I go. In that city, they think I hate that team because I critique what they do. And I always say the same thing. I'm like, who do you cheer for? And it's always that team. You know? <laughs> I've never been accused by a Cowboys fan of hating the Giants. You know, that, that never <laughs> You know, working out, but you know, so I always and I always try and explain. Listen, you know, it's my job to critique what they do, and it's you know, I don't, you know, that's just what I do. It's not, you know, I'm not trying to be mean about it, and I, I have no feelings for or against your team. I'm just doing my job, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. But sometimes you get asked so many times that it begins to wear on you. This year at the Super Bowl, for the first time in my life that I've ever done this, and I'll probably never do it again. But I was walking out of a restaurant with my family, and uh, you know, and I get this, "Hey, Collinsworth." So I know what's coming. You know, <laughs> if they say, "Hey, Chris," they might go, "Hey, I love what you do," or whatever. One of those kind of things. And they go, "Hey, Collinsworth." Now I know what's coming. And so he says, "This guy goes," and he just loaded up a little bit. You know, he had a few drinks, and he's sitting around with about seven or eight guys. And uh, he goes, "He goes, hey, Collinsworth, why do you hate the Giants so much?" And I just couldn't resist myself this time. I just I turned to this guy without even breaking stride, and I go, I don't know, I just hate him. <laughs> the guy went berserk. He froze for like like a couple of seconds, just a couple of wonderful <laughs> seconds, where he couldn't come up with anything, and he turned to his guys, and he goes, I told you that dude hated the Giants. <laughs> But it was just the best of times for me. I was, like, I was so happy. <laughs> well, he never expected you to say that, right? No, not at all. You know, I mean, usually I just give him the, you know, the full explanation. And I was like, I just can't do this again. I'm not doing this again. But when you're at, at dinner with your family, do people come up to you and ask you for autographs and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, but, you know, that doesn't bother me. It really doesn't. I, I mean, I... Jimmy, I got to tell you, you know, 99 out of 100 people that come up to me, it's unbelievable how nice they are and what nice things they say. And, you know, they, they love Sunday night football and they, you know, they just, you know, it's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful being recognizable. You know, that one guy out of 100, mm-hmm. I, I refuse to let that worry me. So now right. I kind of turned it into a game, you know, now it's kind of like, Okay, you know, here's my one out of a hundred. <laughs> Let me mess with this guy a little bit because they never expect it back. You know, they just always expect they're going to give their, they're going to hit and run. They're going to give you a shot and then take off. So, yeah, well, the guy's got seven other guys with him, so you figure you could be bold. You know, it's uh, what's the worst part of the job? Is it the is it the travel and being away from your family? It, it, it's just it's, the only the only bad part about it is it's really like being a coach. You know. Mm-hmm. You, Although I do a lot of my work from home, uh, the three days a week that I am home, um, you just you've got to go lock yourself in the room and and shut out the world. Um, so I actually started coaching my son's high school team because I was never saw him. You know, he's at school all day, and he was, you know, then he would go to practice, and then he'd come home and have dinner. We'd have dinner, and then he'd be off doing his homework. And it's like I never. So I was like, okay. If I, at least if I commit to coaching these two hours, 
in the afternoon. I will see him those two hours, you know. And so that was really one of my favorite parts. Plus, it gave me a brain break, you know. Right. It was, you know, when you study for seven or eight hours, it's like, got to put it down at some point. And so it really, that that was a great idea that, that, uh, that I came up with that uh, I didn't know exactly how it worked out, but it was really great for me. Um, so I got to ask you, when we did our research, everybody kept coming back to me saying, you know that he manages his own Twitter? We've seen his page, and we're very impressed. So they all asked me to ask you, did your kids teach you all about social media? A little bit, you know. But it's um, I actually uh, have my, my, uh, my own website, this uh, footballpros.com, where I have Turk Schoenert and Dave Lapham and some guys that uh, Phil McConkey and some guys that are on there. So give the fans a chance to talk to some guys that play in the NFL. But really, a lot of times the fans are teaching us more about their teams than we're teaching them, you know, kind sure. of. So, so that's been fun. And so a natural sort of outreach to that was this Twitter, which I started. But I had no idea on my, on my webpage – I've got a guy that, you know, I don't, I don't want all those language and the crude comments and all that. So I want it to be family-friendly, and so I've got a guy that kind of knocks people out if they, you know, if they mm-hmm. get too crazy on there. But, you know, as a way to kind of promote that, they said, you should open a Twitter account or a Facebook or, you know, whatever. So I was like, all right, well, let me try the Twitter thing. So I did it, and, and so I would try and, you know, do some stories and sometimes link it back to my website or whatever. What I didn't realize, is that there's no controlling Twitter. I mean, it is. <laughs> I've had things said about me on Twitter that I have never heard in the worst fights I've been in in my life. I mean, it is unbelievable. And it used to kind of shake me up. You know, I was like, God, I'm not going to read that. I'm a, everybody hates me. <laughs> you know, because you get a, where maybe one in a hundred when they come up to you face to face. Well, on Twitter, it's about one out of three, and, and uh, you know, I've had other guys tell me in the media that try and do it. It's like, oh yeah, that's just part. I just have to live with it. But the first time you experience it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. I had a t- conversation with Charles Barkley about it. He said, he goes, it is. It, it takes my breath away sometimes what people. <laughs> Well, I can imagine. You know, it's just unbelievable. I can imagine he gets a, an earful also. And, you know, we do this with our show, and I have somebody else manage it, but I'm astounded at, at how much, you know, how, how many, I mean, how much time people put into it and, and what they write and what they do. And it's just, it's a, it is a complete social, it's a whole new phenomenon, and, and you can't really control it. And, uh, although I will hope that hope that you Twitter about this show so that you can tell people that that you know we had the show. But you are you have uh, uh, it's kind of cool that you do it because it's uh, the thing that the uh, that the people came back and talked to me about. Uh, they found it interesting. Let me let me talk to you a little bit about this article I read in the Harvard Crimson, like father, like daughter. It was really interesting about your daughter Ashley and her involvement in college athletics as a runner. How's your how's your background experiences and injuries helped her through what everything she's going through? None. <laughs> None. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I was I was the track coach. I did uh, with all the kids. I tried to coach something. She was on the track team, and we had a great run. We had an unbelievable team. Obviously, my daughter Ashley was really talented, and she won back to back the hundred meters twice in a row. 
in Kentucky. So that we were all, and we won like four straight state championships, and it was it was just a great fun time. But going to Harvard and running track on a collegiate level, I had no experience with that. And uh, but it, it's really remarkable. I, and uh, I'm I'm proud of all my kids. I've got one daughter just graduated from Florida, and another son that just graduated is going to Notre Dame and doing great. And but there's something about you know when you're when your daughter gets recruited by Harvard and ends up signing there, you go, oh my gosh, my my gene pool just got advanced. <laughs> I go, this is not possible, you know, that I, I've got a kid going to Harvard and she had a great first year and she really studied hard and has all kinds of friends. And, you know, even when she went there, I was just scared to death that, oh my gosh, this is just going to be overwhelming. And these, you know, I mean, you got the... You know, her friends are like the number four ranked kid in chemistry in the world. And, you know, all these, it's ridiculous what these kids are. But I, I've been so impressed up there. I mean, they're all just one kid's better than the next and also gracious and humble. And it's, it's really been a great experience. Well, it's exciting to have, first of all, watch your children grow and, 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 and reach for the stars. And it sounds like yours are all doing it, whether it be at Notre Dame or at Harvard. Um, we only have a few minutes left. I want to ask you, do you want to give us one of your tips for the top 10 for 2012? The top 10 of the NFL? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know what? It's kind of an interesting. The team that I thought finished the year the hottest that didn't make the playoffs were the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, they, they got a big hit, though, when they lost their left tackle, Jason Peters. I, I was kind of leaning that direction, to be honest with you, when I – way I watched it at the end of the season. But, you know, the other thing that people forget is that the Green Bay Packers went, what, 15-1, and one, something like right. that, last year and got beat by the Giants, and the Giants somehow pulled it off again. I, I mean, that team, I think... That shocked really me. Happened. Well, you know what happened to them? They finally got all those guys back healthy. Yeah. You know, when they, they get Jason Pierre-Paul and Justin Tuck and OCU Manure, and they all, when those guys are all playing... They, they can just dominate games like they did against the Patriots twice, winning those, those two Super Bowls. But the team that I think um, that, that everybody's got to keep an eye on a little bit is San Francisco. Um, I, I thought when I was watching them on tape last year that they most reminded me of the Baltimore Ravens and, you know, this incredible run of defense that the, the Ravens have had with Ed Reed and Ray Lewis and, Thugs and you know all those great players that they've they've had over the years on on that team, uh, and and with Patrick Willis you know in the middle and Navarro Bowman and uh, Justin Smith some of those guys this San Francisco defense I think will be in every game played. Uh, Alex Smith it seems to be getting better and better you know not great yet and, and obviously the Giants shut him down in the playoffs. Uh, Frank Gore's a good player so I, I think that's a team that you really have to watch and. And you've got to think that that the Baltimore Ravens are getting close to the end of a run here too. You know, right. that you know how much longer Ed Reed's already talking about will he retire and Ray Lewis and so in some ways it was kind of sad last year to see the way that thing ended. You know, they had a, you know, a, a drop pass at the at the end, a missed field goal, and you know very well could have been the Harbaugh boys going at it in the Super Bowl. So. I don't know. The NFL is so great because nobody knows. Anybody that thinks they know anything about that league is, you know, we pick games every week on Showtime, and it's like, <laughs> we feel like we're just 
pitfalls that are going up. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Chris Collinsworth, for sharing your journey with us. It's really been an honor. Um, you know, you've been listening to a Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. This is Jimmy Gould signing off, and please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our next episode. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and success. And Chris, to you, thank you so much for taking the time today with us. I appreciate it. A pleasure, Jimmy. Travel safe. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 